Aloha, this is Alan Murabayashi speaking to you from Photo Shelter Remote Headquarters in Honolulu, Hawaii, where I am uh, out here volunteering for a high school program. Bom dia to you, Fernando, in New York City, the world headquarters of Photo Shelter. How are you doing today? Bom dia. I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm not in Hawaii, though, so that's a bummer. But Well, we're covering, we're covering the world. <laughs> covering the world. You might be listening to us. Uh, on YouTube or watching us on YouTube at youtube.com slash photoshelter or you might have downloaded the podcast by going to I love I'm going to I love photography by going to iTunes and searching <laughs> for I love photography here's episode number 58 of I love photography let's step right into it a couple weeks ago Fernanda we talked about the onerous contract concert photography contract of Taylor Swift and after some rumblings that some photographers made by writing those open letters and some rumblings by uh, the NPPA and others, we're happy to report that Taylor Swift's company has made some concessions on photography, including where you don't, you can use the photo more than once for news purposes. Yeah, this was a good uh, update to that story. I think that some photographers got what they, what they kind of hoped for, you know, I think in the, in that article, they mentioned that the, Taylor Swift's management people even had the right to take the memory cards out of the photographers at right. the concert. And like destroy them or something. Yeah, exactly. And I thought that was a bit ridiculous. So it's not, you know, it's not the best situation for either party probably, but it's a better it's better than it was two weeks ago. You know what I thought was interesting about this? You know, this whole this whole uh discussion of the concert photography was really caused by Taylor herself because she had criticized iTunes for not paying artists for the new iTunes streaming for three mm -hmm. months. And in response, that photographer wrote the open letter, which led to this discussion. So she kind of set her own place at the table there, which is, which is interesting. But I'm glad to see that uh, photographers have benefited as a result of that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Enough of that. Enough of Taylor Swift. Uh, here is a new book called Tippy my book of Africa and it is from the photographers uh, let's see what were their names again two photographers whose names I am looking for um, and their daughter was raised in Africa and they took photos of her being uh, growing up in Africa and now they're releasing the book many many years later so here she is this is Tippy. She's now 23 and living in France, but here are these lovely photos of her interacting with the wildlife growing up mm -hmm. in the bush. And the photographer's names are, I'm going to find them here. They're there somewhere is. in the article. Yes. Right Sylvia, Sylvia Roberts. Um, so my initial reaction to this was, this is wonderful. This is great. This is just like Jungle Book, uh, the real Mowgli, they're calling it. And then my second reaction, I think partially informed by discussions that have been going around, I couldn't help but feel like this is a bit of cultural appropriation because there's nothing really that fantastic about these scenes other than it's a white girl in Africa. So then I started thinking, huh, maybe we shouldn't be celebrating these photos as much <laughs> as we initially did because if it was just a black kid, in Africa, that's not newsworthy. And if it was a black kid from Africa growing up in the US, it wouldn't be newsworthy because he's a black kid. But suddenly, because it's a little white kid 
you know, hanging onto an elephant, all of a sudden it's, it's noteworthy. It's, it's, it deserves a huge spread in the daily, mm -hmm. daily news. Yeah, in the beginning, I thought that when I first started looking at the photos and reading the article, I thought that she had set for somehow grown up in those cultures with those tribes, and she just happened to be photographed or found. But it, she was just on a trip with her family. So yeah. it's, it's, it is more like the, the there's more of this intruder Western Western person invading that life aspect to it as opposed to a genuine, you know, subject matter. And, and I'm not saying that the experience for Tippy wasn't real and legitimate because I think it, it seems like she spent sufficient time there. Obviously, like you're not going to go up to an animal and have that right. animal be comfortable with you unless you've spent time with the animal. So I think her uh, experience is authentic, but I just, I had a funny feeling uh, in my stomach about kind of celebrating this photography um, because of these reasons. So mm -hmm. uh, great photos. I think it's interesting, uh, an interesting look uh, in Africa, but you know, it was taken uh, close to 20 years ago. And I think that was the time when you could have published it and nobody would have raised these issues. 20 years ago in the mid nineties, it would be like, oh, this is so fun. Yeah. <laughs> but now I think we're a little more culturally sensitive. Or aware. <laughs> exactly. Over on the Lens blog, Joni Sternbach has been going out to different surf spots on Long Island and taking a tintype, um, chemistry and all, and taking portraits of surfers out there. And all over the world, too. Yeah, and a, bu a bunch of places over the world, but not Hawaii, but maybe we'll get her out here at some point. Um, really fascinating. Look, there's something about these old analog processes, particularly tintype for me. You know, we've looked at Victoria Will's uh, portraits from Sundance, all of which have kind of a, a very almost haunting quality to them. I think there's something about that, the contrast of the, the, the darks in the, in the tintype. I'm just fascinated by the fact that she she dragged her chemistry out onto the beach because this isn't the type of thing where you can, you know, take the photo and then go back six hours later and then develop it. You've got to you've got to do the tintype chemistry on the spot. Yeah, and you need to you need to move that stuff with with a truck. You know, it's a it's a hefty load that you're carrying, and to put it on the beach. And it, I like that she initially was photographing the beach. She was photographing waves and the sky, and then. Uh, the surfers were getting in the way of her shot and she just decided to start photographing them and she found her subject matter and I thought that was really interesting. You know, she really captures this surfer vibe, I guess, you know, and this, with this old school process. It's, they're, they're really great uh, tintypes. Being open to the, the possibility of your project evolving, I think is a pretty good quality to have as a photographer because you never know what you're going to find. And Really, in life, I mean, in businesses, we yeah. often have to, you know, do what we call the pivot. Um, and I think your willingness to pivot when opportunity approaches you seems like it worked out in her favor this time. Yeah, so many times <laughs> over the past few years when I was at photo school, I would be working on a project and I thought that I was done. I thought that, oh, okay, I've taken the last image of this project and I'm, this is complete. This is complete. It's, it's working and it's finished only to naively be saying that and then a week later take an even better photo, you know, and right, kick right. out everything else I had. 
Have you ever tried any uh, analog processes like these, like tintype? I there was a class for alternative processes, but I did not take it. Ooh. I know I was I was on more of the digital manipulation class. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was more of my game. I I'm definitely curious. I don't know that I would have the patience to do this on a regular basis, but mm. it it seems you know a lot of things that 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 large format and alternative process photographers say is always the that that the images are precious. They're not just throwaways anymore. And people react differently when you're doing kind of these slower processes. So I am, I'm just intellectually curious about this. Yeah, people do. They have more of a respect for it, I think, than when you, if you just pulled out your iPhone and said it was for your Instagram or something. Well, maybe I'll check out and see if ICP or SVA have a tintype class to take. That might they be do. Nice. Lisa uh -huh. Elmer is a teacher. She's- Aha, all right. <laughs> Uh, over on American Photography's Pro Photo Daily, Fernando, you found this series of portraits of the ocean. And I got to say, this, this opening shot is pretty magnificent. It is. I, I don't think I've ever seen water photographed quite like this. It's so sculptural. There's, there's so much depth to it, and, but darkness as well. It feels so heavy. You feel the weight of the water. It, it was just really mesmerizing to look at these. It almost looks computer generated in a way. And what does that does that say? Really great things about computer generated graphics, or really <laughs> things about us? I I think it says I I do think it says uh, incredible things about computer generated graphics. But I think it says more to the photographer that they were there and they caught this moment. That mm -hmm. is, to your point, very sculptural, very dynamic, and the light is just the light is amazing. Yeah. So there are a bunch from Ray Collins and some other photographers, but Ray's really capturing kind of, I guess what I would call peak wave. Hmm. I don't know that you get better at uh, capturing <laughs> the peak wave. And here's Scott Hoyle's image of uh, a wave kind of hitting the shore and seeing kind of the, the, the foam and the spray. It's abstracted. Yeah, it's a nice composition there too. I couldn't help but thinking when I was looking at these images, all of which are very different in their style. Here we're looking at Jeff Friesen. Uh, they're, they're all very, very different. And some of the init initial ones um, really reminded me of the work of Clark Little, to bring it back to Hawaii, as I often do. But Clark <laughs> Little is a North Shore-based photographer. Um, and his wife wanted some photos for the house one day. So he went out into the surf, and he started taking photos of the waves crashing. And when he came back and looked at the photos, he said, well, that's pretty interesting. Hmm. So he kept going out and he got a surf housing and he started taking these photos and now he's kind of a big deal. I mean, I don't know that he necessarily invented this style, but I've seen a lot of people kind of copy this shore break photography, like right on the shore with the sun coming through and being enveloped by the wave. It, yeah. it all feels very inspirational. Yeah, inspirational, a little touristy maybe. A little touristy. Like decorative, yeah. decorative, but yeah. they're nice photos and I'm sure it, took effort to get them and get there, so. And these are the kind of photos, you know, when I look at this and I look at the tintypes, it's not that I want to do that type of photography, but sometimes I wish I just had one or two photos in my portfolio of that type of photography. <laughs> this is kind of a checklist. Oh yeah, I did that once. I took a nice, nice photo of that. Yeah, I, I know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen some wonderful aerial photography by Vincent LaFerre, whose air projects has gone around to different cities around the world uh, and gone up into a helicopter at 
over a mile high in the sky. I think he actually goes to 7,000 feet. Well, Vincent is in his mid to late 30s, and that's certainly something to celebrate. But here's a 71-year-old in L.A. hanging out the side of a helicopter to shoot the beauty of L.A. He's not as high as Vincent is, but look at these images. They're beautiful. There's a really nice symmetry and you, you, can't, you can hardly believe the guy is 71 and still hanging out of a helicopter because from everything that I've heard about people who've done helicopter shoots, they're very, very taxing. The yeah. vibration, hanging out the door, thinking you're going to fall. There's so many factors to consider. And it's not, I don't think in these circumstances, it's not, you know, spray and pray. I think you have to compose your shots. You have to really take, be careful when you're shooting. And he, he does some amazing work. I like this photo in particular with the, Highway and the freeways crossing over each other. Yep, yep. Kind of like the new True Detective opener. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, True Detective is uh, well known for their aerial shots. Um, you know, there's something about aerial photography. I just never get bored of it. I mean, there's, there's good aerial photography and there's bad aerial photography. I never get bored of good aerial photography because it's such an interesting perspective. It is. They just, just really, yeah, and this guy really nails it. Yeah, and I think he's trying to say a lot about how how we live and how we organize ourselves in society and in our cities, and you know that whole uh, cookie cutter, mm -hmm. ticky boxes one after the other. Everything kind of looks the, looks the same after a while, but it's there's so much of a of an order to it. It's for an OCD that an OCD person that's really great. <laughs> Like myself, so I love these. This one's cool of uh, boats at a marina, and but there are two boats that are coming up and down kind of the, the pathway mm -hmm. uh, with a little bit of a wake there. Uh, these would be great to see blown up large on a wall in a gallery. Yeah, and especially since these are, I think, medium format, so you could really get in close in those. Yeah. So Jeffrey Milstein, keep doing what you're doing at 71. We love these, love these photos. Um, this wasn't so much a photo story, but over on the New York Times, there was a long form piece about uh, human trafficking. And the photographer, Sergei Ponomarev, who's won some accolades at World Press. I don't know, I was just really kind of stunned by the quality of these photos from a photojournalistic standpoint, but also just aesthetically, he's doing something with the toning. Uh, mm -hmm. They're slightly desaturated, but there's kind of a silvery quality uh, to them that really make the photos quite gripping to me. And I, I'm curious to hear what your reaction were, was to these photos. I thought the one that you're stopping at right now was of the people walking through the, the field with the dark sky behind it. I thought that was a particularly haunting photo. It's, it's I don't know, it's scary on so many levels. There's this huge storm coming and you have yeah. this darkness coming from the foreground out and the people are walking towards it. And then given the context of the story of the human trafficking, you can't help but fear for the subjects in these photos. And you have, you know, from the older guy to the little baby, you have this whole generation of fear, basically. And There's I think something that, yeah. really about the, the tone, the, the color tone of the image, too, with that, that kind of dark steel blue and the mm -hmm. green. It, the, the, I, I, I definitely agree. This is a very visceral and emotional photo for some reason. Yeah, and they're and they are desaturated, but and you, but you can still see this color. But it's like there was there's not any color, and there will never be any color, just in the mood of the photos in general. 
it's just despair. That's what I get from it a lot. Yeah, and th here's a photo of two uh, rickshaw drivers in the rain, um, and you see the rain kind of pelting down in a vertical, uh, in a hor uh, what, what would call a diagonal motion. And again, kind of the same ominous feel to the whole thing. So my question would be, first of all, I love these photos. My question would be, did he take too much artistic freedom in the toning to kind of reinforce this notion of it being ominous? Or is it, is it fine, do you think? I think to a certain extent, to this extent, it's fine. I don't think it's that over the top. Because when you are taking your artistic opinion and your voice when you point the camera at what you pointed at. So that's already the first step that you make in deciding what you are depicting. So I think that changing the exposure and the color balance a little bit doesn't really affect the message. It just enhances what he was experiencing and what the story says. He, here, here's a, a wonderful photo. Uh, we're on a riverbank. There's a stone wall and there's a man praying. Um, and he pops the the whites on the man a little bit compared to the rest of the scene. The guy is wearing very light colored clothing in the first place, but mm -hmm. you know he's he's a small figure in the center of the frame, and your eye just goes straight to him. I I was just really impressed with with all the photos in this story, and I I look forward to seeing more by Sergey. Uh, I hope that he continues to cover this story. He has done similar stories uh, in the past, so really knocked it out of the park on this one. Worth, worth taking a look over on the New York Times. This link and all the links we're talking about today are available on the blog at blog.photoshelter.com if you'd like to see the photos that we're looking at. A few days ago, the National Archives of the United States of America released never seen, never before seen photos from the 9-11 attacks. So 14 years later, we're seeing behind the scene photos of Bush, Cheney, and the White House staff when you think of these images in context of the day, they're pretty remarkable. The one thing I couldn't get over, which is superficial on my part, is how crappy film looks in, in low light. <laughs> it just, you know, it just does not stand up initially and then over time as the negatives age. I mean, it just doesn't look that good. Um, I know that's the most shallow thing to say, but you know, we're looking, we're criticizing not only what photos are saying, but also what the photos look like. And when I look at the photos that have come out of the White House today with that, the brilliance of digital and the low light capabilities of the, of the cameras, it, it, I mean, these look like old photos because they are old photos and because the, the quality of film is, is, is that way. It might also have been something on the processing side of things because these were never meant to go to press. So they wouldn't have taken the time to really work with them to bring out, you know, the colors of the light. That's very true. That's very true. Something like that. But it is an interesting perspective into this moment after the tragic attack. And it's just something that we would never see, how they reacted, how they dealt with it. And you can kind of tell in their expressions a lot of the time that they, they're just in despair. They're not knowing, you know, what to do. And I don't know. You know, we said last week when we were looking at those photos from the 80s uh, in Italy, mm -hmm. and I commented on, you know, the thinness of people and in talking about, you know, other historical photos where the hairstyles and the dress changes pretty dramatically. I'm actually surprised at how contemporary the hairstyles and the dress and, 
you know, I, I was expecting like a huge CRT monitor on Cheney's desk, but he actually has a, a flat screen monitor, which I guess we, in 2001, I guess those are pretty prevalent. Yeah. But you'd be hard-pressed to really say, like, in this image, what what year this was, other than the fact that he's got the Twin Towers on his television. True, true. Just interesting, interesting mm -hmm. stuff. Adweek has a really interesting piece on a clothing store for teens and tweens called Forever 21. You might have seen these in your local mall. They're kind of a... They try to be very, very hip and uh, low cost. And they decided as a marketing uh, promotion, they would build or a contract to build a giant, I'm going to call it a monitor, <laughs> a thread monitor. And the thread monitor uh, will accept your Instagram photos and turn them into images on the thread monitor. It's a huge monitor. Um, so 6,400 wooden spools feature rainbow ribbons that spin to change among 36 colors. And we're watching a video, and I know it's horrible to watch a video over uh, the, the webcast, but it's pretty remarkable the way this thing works. Yeah, I think, I think they go behind the scenes and how they built this, and it, it was just an insane process that took, I think, over a year and a half to do. I got to say, I watched the behind the scenes video and I was fascinated. I couldn't figure out what the heck they were doing. I still right. don't have an idea of like what exactly the thread spools are because they didn't look like they're like fat threads. They're not a single filament of thread. Yeah, I still don't know how this works. <laughs> uh, but is, I think this is in New York somewhere, isn't it? It probably is. is. It probably is. Uh, and anyway, if you read the article, uh, there's a way that you can use a hashtag, uh, hashtag F21 thread screen. And apparently your images can go up. Uh, it was built by a Brooklyn agency from scratch. Amazing. Amazing what you can do nowadays. Truly amazing. <laughs> you brought up Beam last week. Beam is the new uh, social... Mm, screen capture, live capture <laughs> app from Casey Neistat, uh, viral video fame. And over on Wired, Kyle Van Hemert has an op-ed about it. Beam has a problem. Authenticity is boring. And he says, and I think rightfully so, that you know the success of social media, the ongoing success of social media is because we evolved past telling everyone what we were doing every single moment of the day. And we got to the point where we realized curation was important in audience building. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I do like the point that um, the author makes in this article. He, we are, we are curating our lives with these social media. And, you know, even in Snapchat, which is this is supposed to be the direct competitor of in Snapchat, you are curating what you're showing, and you're trying to get the best view of what you're doing. And even when you're doing stories and trying to tell people every moment of your day, you're still making it look a certain way, and you're still selecting what you're showing. So I, I think, yeah, I don't have a problem with the with the curated life because our brains curate our life anyway. Our brains cause us to remember certain events and forget other events. And so similarly, I think it's fine that that you curate your life. the The difference is your audience. 
your audience's reaction to the creation. Some people have this intense feeling of FOMO, fear mm -hmm. of missing out. And then, you know, I just read an article today in the New York Times about uh, uh, a rash of suicides at University of Pennsylvania, in part because of the pressure they felt like, oh, this person won the science contest and this person's jet setting all over the world and I have FOMO, I'm not doing enough. You, you've, got to, you've got to manage your response to seeing a curated life and say, well, oh, that's a curated life. You've got to be realistic. You have to understand that everything you see online has been carefully thought out and edited. And yeah, it's not a realistic, realistic depiction of the person's life by any means. I'm still skeptical of uh, Beam's chances for success. I, I love the concept of being present. Mm -hmm. I love the concept of not look, going to a live concert and watching it through the screen of your phone. Mm -hmm. um, but to the author's point, I just think that that you need to be able to curate and, and the live cast is going to have a very limited shelf life, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it's more of a question of our, our use of these tools, our interaction with them, and our understanding of their place in our lives more than the tools themselves. Totally agree. Totally agree with that. The LA Times is a pretty interesting story about a World War II vet named Sus Ito. And he was in the highly decorated 442nd Regiment. It was an all Japanese American regiment uh, at a time where many Japanese Americans were interned in camps in the United States of America. Uh, volunteers in the army got sent all over the world and became the most heavily decorated and suffered uh, many of the most losses on a per capita basis. But this guy, Susumu Ito, decided he was going to take a small pocket camera uh, in his travels, which was illegal. Um, and he started taking some really, really interesting photos of just sort of daily life. But the guy went everywhere, uh, all over Europe, in major, major battles, and just has some interesting scenes of life that 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 don't look like the typical kind of PR photo coming out of the, the military at the time. Especially because he was focusing on his brigade or his brigade unit yeah. um, that was prevalent with Japanese Americans and not the GI Joes of that time. It was showing exactly. kind of shocking to see in a lot of ways. It, it, it reminds you how sort of programmed we are by by what we've seen in history books and and old movie reels and whatnot to say this is what war was like and you know the what was that Brad Pitt movie all these Brad Pitt movies that come out from the <laughs> war what about the tank and and whatnot you never see an Asian American soldier in there and yet here he is outside the Coliseum I mean yeah. what on earth yeah this is a different a very interesting look into that side of things that we had never really seen before. And not, not great photos compositionally by any stretch of the imagination, but such an interesting look at a time where you don't see this type of subject matter being Japanese Americans uh, in the mm -hmm. context of the war. Mm -hmm. So just fascinating to, to see this stuff come out. Feature Shoot, one of our favorite sites for photography. Here's a great series called Wonderlust, W-O-N-D-E-R, not Wanderlust, not the lust for travel. But Andy Schreiber is the photographer. And just 
such an interesting style of photography. How would you describe this photography? <laughs> I don't know. It's a mix of, you know, Nan Golden and yeah. Eleanor Carucci. And that's what I, that was my struggle with it, is that it doesn't seem to know what perspective it wants to take on this life. Mm. Um, I think in the article they pull the ones that kind of make sense together a little bit more, but I went on through to her website, or excuse me, his website, um, or Andy's website, and it seems that it was kind of all over the place in that it was trying to be really sentimental and showing these close moments of, in, of family time and interaction and tenderness, but then it would also show these gritty kind of like Richard Billingham photos that just contrasted way too much with these other ones. So I don't know. They're Individually, they're very good photos, and they tell a lot of the story, but I just don't know how they work together necessarily. I like your analysis. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it strikes me that like this, this edit I, I liked, but I get your point. Seeing probably the, the, the bigger body of work, there probably isn't as much coherence to it visually. Um, I like the grittiness of the photos. I thought there was a very real and I wouldn't say hyper real, but there's Andy's really trying to push this sort of grittiness of life, of, of, of like suburban life. It's not gritty in kind mm. of an inner city way, but it's kind of a gritty in the way that young boys might scratch each other. And here's a photo of that, you know, one minute after the scratch that that sort of resonated with me to a certain extent, but I certainly understand your criticism. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that this is a very good edit by the feature shoot editor. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, hire a good editor. You're going to be good. You're going to be good. I love food photography. Here's a Danish photographer, and I'm going to butcher this name, Mikkel Yul Yulshov, <laughs> who was hired by a cookware company, I believe it was, to photograph a set of images of food prior to there were, uh, as ingredients, prior to them being made into an actual dish. And we've seen similar photography. Uh, I'm thinking of the modernist cuisine uh, with Nathan Mirvold, who wrote a six volume set and the photographer whose name's escaping me, but they did some uh, images that are sort of, uh, you know, similarly evocative. Um, I like the symmetry of these images. I like the, the color palette of these images. I didn't love the set of images because I feel like it's been done before. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a great ad campaign. Um, yeah, but exactly. I don't, I don't know if it goes much further than that, but it's, it's, it's fun for what it's selling. It's a, it's a nice way to do that, I think. Yeah, you can definitely see type being put over these images and being very effective visually in a magazine. But I don't know that you would ever go to a gallery to, to look at this stuff, nor would you necessarily pay to put this on your wall. Unless you were the restaurant in question. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good point. Uh, always ending on a fun note or a light note or an inspirational note. Uh, in this case, a little bit of a nostalgic note. A depressing note. Oh, a depressing note. <laughs> uh, over on Mashable, photos of the original Penn Station before it was destroyed and turned into MSG, Madison Square Garden, where the New York Knicks and the New York Rangers and many, many concerts are played. But, oh. This, this made me sad. This made me really sad looking at these. 
it, I, it's hard to fathom that politicians at some moment in time said, we're going to tear this thing down to put up MSG. To put up MSG. I, like, I can't get over it. I didn't know that this... I, my New York history isn't very on point, so I didn't know that this was this existed. And I was just utterly shocked to see the beauty of Penn Station and what it is now. I know, because, you know, when you walk into Grand Central Station and they, they've cleaned that ceiling a few times and you see the mm -hmm. brilliance of the blue and the constellations, mm -hmm. and that's a pretty big hall. Yeah. But I'm, I'm guessing that this building was far larger and far more grand uh, than what we see at Grand Central. And you can, you know, the light streaming in through the windows. Uh, and, and, and they would never build a building like this anymore. It would be too prohibitive. Yeah. Look at this detailing on the ceiling. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Okay, you're right. I'm getting sad now. <laughs> I mean, at least we have these great photos to survive it. So the New York Public Library actually has a huge stash, and this is where we're seeing these photos from, I, I believe. They, they put up a ton of photography that you can search on a map, a Google map, and pull up different areas of New York from different decades. And I was looking at the block on which my building was built in 1910s or 1920s, and you can mm -hmm. see my, my apartment building going up and you're... Huh. You know, it's the biggest building at the time anywhere in, 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 in the sight lines. It's really fascinating to see the, the, growth of, uh, the growth of a city and, in some cases, the decline of a city. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which seems to be where it's headed. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that wasn't quite the inspirational note that I wanted to end on, but <laughs> a lot of good photography that we saw this week uh, for episode 58. Fernando, hold down the fort in, uh, in New York. Uh, I think we're going to do maybe one more show before I come back from Hawaii. I'll try to hold it down. I'll try not to have any buildings demolished for <laughs> sports yeah. arenas anytime soon. <laughs> exactly. So Fernando, for Fernando Gomez, this is Alan Rubayashi signing off. Thanks for watching. I love photography. Bye-bye.